is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story. Good ones, bad ones, sad ones, happy ones, stories about people, stories about towns. We did a, we did a story on the, uh, the, the city of Denver and how it came to be, the great train robbery, an event. And sometimes an ad tells a story, and some guy was trying to sell his Dodge Viper on Craigslist and posted a hilarious sales pitch that warns the reader of an impending doom should they choose to purchase, said Viper. Here's that ad read by our in-house talking computer, Ed. Okay. Full disclosure. I almost killed myself in it. It is very powerful. Extremely, extremely fast. I've driven Ferraris that don't feel as crazy as this thing. I am frankly afraid of it now. That's right. It's in my garage and I'm afraid to drive it because it's like a crazy steroid bull that wants to kill me. I've done 130 miles per hour on a Ducati while laughing into the face of death. The Viper is a completely different bowl of crack. The engine sounds like 40 pit bulls eating kittens while lifting weights. I cannot truly explain its power. It has whiplash acceleration in third gear at 50 miles per hour. That sentence doesn't even make sense. But it's true. That's why I'm telling you. I will not have your soul on my conscience. You need to know what you are getting into. What insane level of crazy you are buying. Can you resist the urge to mash down the accelerator? Can you? Because it's like owning your own demon. A demon that wants to kill you. We all know one person that for the right amount of money would kill you. But since no one is pain, they smile in your face and go about their day. It's like that except the viper doesn't bother to ever pretend it doesn't want to kill you. And it will do it for free. Some brilliant engineer designed a beautiful sexy bulging body, fantastic suspension, great handling, aerodynamics, and all-American style. While he was out on his lunch break, some demented maniac dropped 100 times more engine power than necessary into it and sent it out the door. It's mentally unbalanced. Look. If you are the type of person that can be talked into having one more drink at midnight when you have a very important presentation or interview early the next morning, then the Viper is not for you. The whole car is constantly whispering sweet lies to you. You got this. Open me up and ride free. You got this. Are you a wussy? Just do it. Do it. You got this. Do not do it. You don't got it. You are a wussy. You will sit on the curb and settle your heart after it tries to kill you the first time. You will get back inside and it will immediately get back to the business of trying to get you to let it murder you. You got this. This time you know. That last time was just a fluke. You ain't no wussy, repeat after me. You don't got this. But for $30,000 you can look the devil in the eye and take this ride. You were warned. <laughs> well, thank you. Jesse, and thank you, Ed. And by the way, I love that computer read, Jesse. Saves us. We're going to automation here Absolutely. at Our American Stories. And from the sublime to the serious, our field correspondent, John Woods, serves in the Army National Guard, and he bumped across a troubling story from Major Paul Stubbs that was in the Marine Corps Times. And that's what we go from, Craigslist to the Marine Corps Times. And it was titled, quote, Blowing off orders has become a troubling norm. And Major Stubbs graciously recorded it for us. And you're about to hear just how troubled he feels about it. You can actually hear the despondency in his voice. Here he is. 
I think I'll grow a beard. It is increasingly apparent that more and more Marine Corps are just set aside because we're so busy answering higher-ups mail and adding new requirements and systems to track and manage training and equipment. Not out of belligerence, just as a matter of course. It's non-malicious selective disobedience. Don't believe me? Then why do we take weeks or months preparing for readiness inspections? If we'd been executing the orders, we would all just be in compliance with standards as a matter of course. Any day of the week would be a good day for an inspection. But we don't comply until it becomes an absolute necessity. Operations shut down and Marines are pulled to help the sections get back in compliance, like Badlands Corporals who live like pigs until Thursday afternoon inspections. Is that the new standard? As Marines, we keep our eye on the ball. Hire's intent. We get the items briefed at the commanding officer's weekly meeting done first. Units are 100% sexual assault, prevention, and readiness trained, but our vehicle record jackets haven't been updated in months and our weapons are dirty. But no one's asking about the vehicles or the weapons just now. And if our unit numbers are in red and the other units are in green, we look bad in front of the boss. The direction we're heading leaves us continually playing catch-up and clean-up as the requirements that actually get noticed change. This engenders a weapons turn-in mentality. We're busy, so only clean where they will look. The rest can rust. We have other things to do. I've had senior officers brush aside requirements because the unit was too busy. When they're confronted with the actual order to which that requirement pertained, they responded, but there's no demand signal to spend time on this. Really? As if a compressed schedule translated into automatic exception. But commanders set priorities, and if they add rocks to a pack and never take any out, well-meaning career professionals have to decide for them which orders they will ignore. The answer is the ones that aren't enforced. Why is there never a discussion about getting rid of requirements, just adding new ones? For example, why does a lieutenant colonel who has never used tobacco have to take the online tobacco cessation class every year? Is that something that could perhaps be only required for tobacco users? Does a Marine married for 20 years with a crop of kids really need the class on preventing sexually transmitted diseases? Is he or she the target audience for this information? We preach top-down planning and bottom-up refinement, but we seem to skip that second part. We've chosen to stay on top of the things our higher commands put on their radar. The rest is set aside as something we pay attention to once every couple of years, when it again becomes important to leadership, command inspection scorecards. So, I think I'll grow a beard and see how long it takes someone to tell me I'm out of regulation. Then, if they're not of higher rank than me or able to reach into my chain of command, I will apply what seems to be our paradigm of ignoring it until there are actual consequences. Or maybe I should just keep shaving every day and we should do a sanity check on the cost and hours of compliance and match that up against what we want the unit to do for the actual primary mission. But we can't do both, and we aren't. And that's again from John Woods. And again, we love bringing you every kind of story, and we want to hear the real voices of the men and women who serve this country and the bureaucratic bureaucratic rules and norms they have to deal with and the political the political ramifications of some of this stuff that gets thrown at them this is our american stories more after these messages is our American stories where we love to tell stories about everything and right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer 
players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. All right, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another wherever they work, probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they work with, somebody in competition with them. They never get to do it. But they like to see someone else do it. I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna be a vet like your dad? Being the 13-year-old still dreamer, I was like, no, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only gonna take me so far. Every league I went into, I was, I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. If you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. 
So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not going to dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're going to whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. If anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr, <laughs> wow. Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course, you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good. I'm sick. Yeah, because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow when you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line, and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down below. The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. Over the blue line. Maddox gets it again and brings it right back in for Buffalo. Here's Maddox walking in on goal. He scores! The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that held other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. And you need guys to create room for those players. Nice move, another nice move! What a goal! Left point, over to Blake. Blake feeds it to Gretzky. Gretzky scores! What a shot by Wayne Gretzky! If there wasn't a Marty McSorley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. McSorley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg, and he speared Gretz, and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end, and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down, and I really hit him hard almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes up. Now I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings, three o'clock, you've got to go fight toughest kid in the school on the playground and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, Bob Probert. The night before it was tough sleeping, the night before a game and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. 
Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight and then you lose two and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers and you blink and there you are, you're 10, 12 years into the league, you've had your shoulder fixed two or three times, you've broken your hand a couple of times, there's a 20 year old kid and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you, he wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice. They are having words at the edge of the circle and they drop the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that, that doesn't get called that's not going to that it's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie. You know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash. The stick in the face, the cross check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use you know, his whole team as an example and just say, that one guy created this for every single one of you. So now you're all on my radar. Are they going to? And yes, they are. If I can't get you, I'm going to go to your best player and say, I'm going to break your leg because of him. And then they go, really? Really? And when we come back, more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here and for anybody who loves the sport well you're loving this and for any of you who don't and just sort of have any casual acquaintance with the sport which I did I went to a few Ranger games when I lived in New York but I always wondered why all the fights and who are these guys well let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, if the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policeman for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. 
But sometimes, one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analysing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, have played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skill players, perhaps, who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers... He wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky, I mean, he had Semenko and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Semenko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What do you think Ray Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you. And if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career, because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky... Nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean. People would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact, the first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. 
Broad Street bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them, and, and their owner had said, this isn't going to happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner, said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up, because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could duke it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point, my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just going to beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That's sort of dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger-Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was, like, that, that, that uber-violence through the 80s as well. Like anything, it, it, uh... It became a culture developed around it, um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill-specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and, you know, I almost had to pull all of hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just try to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting, and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now, and Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter. Their stories, their lives, the story of hockey in America, here on Our American Stories, continues after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same with in hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sports. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than you know to, to wonder who you're going to fight or if you're going to have to fight at all. You're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything, like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. It's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on, uh, on that player, on those people, than what people uh, think of it as. The fights also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaForge spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL, but after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. 
once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me. I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one -on -one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend furlough. <laughs> looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs, smashing out teeth. You think he's merciless, that, that he should be exterminated. He's a cockroach in the game. And then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life. In pursuing the question of the enforcer, you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human. What does the enforcer call on? Profound loyalty. Loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure, his own body, his own bones, his own teeth, his own brain, on behalf of protecting people he deeply loves. The enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the enforcer defends, we would love the enforcer because the enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ enforcer and, as you will hear, all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. <laughs> good luck, man. Good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey? It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to 
punched their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now. And I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. OK, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight and you skate off. And there's been a, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. Someone told me if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL. Easy. Wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I'd loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. <sighs> With a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself. And uh, a little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be, more rules, more enforcement. We wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These enforcers' stories.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers segment. And in the past, we featured the life of Fred Smith, building FedEx from nothing into, well, something. And Bernie Marcus, a kind supporter of this show, and he and a couple of his friends built Home Depot from scratch and wrote a book called Built from Scratch. And we love entrepreneur stories. We even did Mario Andretti, an hour on him and his life, because my goodness, what a life it was. And... It was an entrepreneur's story because he owned a, a racing car uh, company, ultimately, and employed a lot of people. And joining us today, we love to do small businesses, mid-sized businesses. It's quite a story. Joining us today is Don Lafridi. We're going to start from the beginning. Don owns now 77 restaurants in Arizona, Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. But she grew up in humble beginnings and Dawn, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Now, before we get into the business story, Dawn, we always start, no matter who we talk to here on this show, with the, the childhood, the parents, the location, uh, the early life. Uh, and talk, talk to us about your, your parents and where you grew up and the circumstances under which you grew up. So I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, and uh, my father was not much of a provider. My mother always was providing for the family. My father just wasn't uh, the perfect human being. So my mom worked long hours to feed us, put a roof over our head. But I started working at a very young age, babysitting, taking odd jobs, anything I could to make a few bucks. And I always had the pressure um, as a child as to wondering if the bills were going to be paid, if there was enough food on the table, if we were going to make ends meet. And I remember thinking as a, as a young girl, you know, one day I just want to own my own company so I don't have to worry about this. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. So I always knew that working was something I was going to have to do. I wasn't going to get married and have babies and have a husband. I was going to work and I was going to make my way in the world. And so when I turned 16... I got a job uh, at Taco Bell right around the corner where I could walk, and I saved up enough money to get a car so that I could get a job at Denny's. And at the time, my mother was a district manager for Denny's, and I just felt that it would be a great stepping stone for me. I could waitress. I could earn tips. So that's what I did. I got a job. I was a hostess. I saw that waitresses were making a lot more money. And I begged and I begged and I begged to be a waitress. And I was pretty young. I was 16 and a half at the time. And the manager would say to me, no, we need you as a hostess. You're such a great hostess. We can't make you a waitress. And I just pressed on him until he finally gave me the chance. And I became the best waitress he had had. I made a lot of money in tips. I saved them all uh, in hopes of buying my own business one day, of which I didn't know at the time what it would be. And back in the early 80s, uh, Denny's bought a chain of restaurants called Hobo Joe's and Colony Kitchens. And there was one restaurant in Globe, Arizona. It was a tiny little mining town about 80 miles east of Phoenix. Um, And they had a restaurant there that they didn't want to convert to a Denny's. And a manager friend of mine and I, we got wind of this store, and we ended up buying it off of very little savings credit cards. We took every penny we could off credit cards. We went and we applied 5000 here, 5000 there, bought our first restaurant off credit cards, did well with it. And then in 1984, oil went bust in West Texas. 
and Jenny's corporate called and said, we have four dog stores. Would you like to take a shot at them? <laughs> and that was really, I think, the big moment in, you know, realizing, you know, I'm, I'm going to be my, my own business owner. I, I was, you know, with the first restaurant in Arizona, but there was something bigger about this. This was I was moving my life. Um, this was a, this was four restaurants at once, yep. and it, it was a very exciting time. Although you take a girl from Orange County, California, and you put her in Midland, Texas, <laughs> and there's a little bit of a culture shock and a huge learning curve. Oh my goodness! And I know Midland well. I've been there many times. It's uh, it's the heart of the oil patch. It's the Permian Basin, and right now they've got some of the biggest oil finds in world history there. But when gas prices go down. Oh, my goodness. Right. So it's feast or famine. It is feast or famine. And even the most rambunctious multimillionaire oil man doesn't look like the same man uh, when oil prices are down, Don. Well, it's really it's something. True. It's so true. And it, even to this day, you know, I've, I've uh, been in West Texas for 30 years now. When oil's booming, I can't even get somebody to wash my windows because... They're working the oil fields or mow my grass. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting city how you do business there. And you either have tons and tons of business and not enough help, or tons of help and not enough business. Right. And and the great thing about starting out in West Texas is I learned how to survive. Oh my goodness, Don! Everyone should start. It's the equivalent in West Texas because it's the equivalent of uh, Paris Island. It's like boot camp for an entrepreneur. You know, it really is. And I remember being young. I was I was very young when I started out there, and I would work seventeen hours a day just to be able to make ends meet. And it really taught me a lot. And the biggest thing it taught me is there's always going to be a rainy day. You know, there's always going to be a time when sales aren't where they should be or when costs are higher than they should be. And it really prepped me for what was to come later down in my career. Well, let's hold that thought. And when we come back on the other side, I'm going to back up just a little bit. I want to ask about what you learned working at such a young age. Very often on this show, one of the recurring themes is why we aren't having our kids working younger. So many kids aren't learning. They're learning a lot of things, but they're not necessarily learning how to put in a hard day's work. Well, I have a lot to say about that. I so am I sure you, Don, I am sure you do, owning 77 restaurants. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer segment. We love doing these because, well, what you heard from Don was what you hear from all these folks. I, I just want to be my own boss. I want to take destiny in my own hands. And if you remember Bernie Marcus, his mother, well, she had that uh, arthritis. She couldn't move. As he said, my father just wasn't a very good provider. Sounded exactly like Dawn's circumstance. Lived in Newark, New Jersey, in a tough neighborhood. And yet at 50, started Home Depot. And that is the American dream. And that's why we love doing this American Dreamer series. This is, again, Lee Habib. This is our American story, the story of Dawn LaFrida. And her remarkable rise to own 77 restaurants in this great country. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories. Our American Dreamer series continues with Don LaFrieda. And Don, I wanted to just backtrack a second during the break. We were just commenting about working early, starting work at a young age. And I actually think it was an advantage for you that you started young. And I don't know that any of this would have been possible had you not started working at a young age and not had to face tough circumstances. Talk a little bit about how that might have been an opportunity for you while other people might have seen it as bad luck. Well, you know, I knew I didn't have some of the options that other people had. And so, as I said to you earlier, I knew I was going to have to work. So if I wanted a car, I was going to have to work to get the car. If I wanted new clothing, if I wanted to go out to eat, anything I really wanted at that age, I had to work for. I had to work really starting much younger than 16 just to get some of the things that I might have personally wanted. So going out and getting a job was very empowering for me. I was finally in control of really my own money, my own destiny, what I could have, what I couldn't have, instead of someone always saying, well, we can't afford that. Or, you know, living in a household with a a parent that doesn't work and only one parent, you know, providing for three children, it was very rough times. And, you know, we all survived. And I know people have harder luck stories than I do. But, I started, as I said, working at the age of 10 and 11 to make money to buy a new dress for Easter. And so what I learned is money could buy me things. It could buy me control of my life. It could let me be in charge of where I wanted to go. And where I wanted to go was to the top. And I had hoped to go to college, and that was my wish, and I started out there, and I didn't quite make it. So I knew I just had to work extra hard to to have the things I wanted to have in life and to have a career. And we learn so often that the entrepreneurs that we've been talking to, so many of them either drop out of college, don't ever get to college. Uh, When we did Steve Jobs for the hour, his speech at Stanford was about him dropping out at Reed College, which he did. And then he dropped back in and took a calligraphy course, but only just auditing it. And that calligraphy course set in motion a way of thinking about space and art and beauty And he was advising these kids, look, God bless that you went to Stanford, but lots of great things happen without college. And let's talk about the flip side of this, Don, work and young people. Uh, You hire a lot of young people. We're going to continue with your story, but you hire a lot of young people. Talk about the work ethic now and what you're bumping up against as you go to hire people. What's the pool of workers now today like? What was oh it like gosh. 20 years ago? Oh, my gosh. It's it's just worlds different. So, And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm the mother of uh, 13-year-old twin sons. And, and I want to give them everything that I didn't have. But in thinking that, I also have to think about what we're faced with today. And, and it's my generation that it has caused what I think is some of the problem within the workforce because times are a little different. We want to give our kids better. We don't necessarily make them rush out and get a job at 16. We buy them cars. We buy them cell phones. uh, We want them to be in sports. We want them to be focusing on their homework. Well, there's really not a lot of time to go get a job. Well, for me, I didn't have a choice. I had to get a job. And I think that's part of the problem today. A, there's not enough workforce But also, when I look back to when I bought my first restaurant, the competition was very different. I mean, there was Denny's. There were maybe a couple of other restaurants. Now there's 50 in a two- or three-mile radius, all begging for the same customer and the same employee. 
we all need to staff our restaurants and we all need customers, but all of it gets a little piece of your pie. So here's what happens. When I was a server, I wouldn't even dream of calling in sick and definitely not no call, no show. Well, today, well, you know, I want to go to a concert or, you know, I'm going to go away for the weekend. I'll just not show up because I can get a job across the street with no problem because everybody's hiring. And I think that's a large part of the problem. Because you you don't you don't have the longevity. You don't you, you know you can get a job anywhere, so I don't think you're as dedicated. Yep. Yep. I think that's a huge 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 problem today in addition to kids don't have to work as hard. And so when we're building in neighborhoods that are more up and coming and prominent, the kids aren't having to work. Yeah, you know, when I was young, and I hate doing the the back-in-the-day stuff because we all sound so old and mean that way, but I do think there's something here. You know, I just remember all the kids I knew. If we went to do something, we weren't allowed to quit. I mean, I couldn't go back to my dad when I was working at Roy Rogers, my first job, and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I couldn't say those words to him. If they wouldn't have been greeted with kindness... I would have had severe consequences, and I couldn't think of not working for a job for at least a year, given it the old college try, and I better have found a different job before I talked to Dad about that job. Well, and you know what the hard part about that is for employers is we, we invest money in your training. Yep. And it becomes very costly. And I have a friend of mine who runs a company, and and this was a few years back before things got really bad. He says, you know, I was interviewing someone for a job, and it was more like they were interviewing me. Uh, How many days off do I get? How many sick days do I get? How many times a year do I get a review? When do I get my raises? How many times can I call in sick? You know, I mean, it's like you're being interviewed instead of interviewing the employee. And I don't know if it's just kind of where we've evolved as a society. But I do think things need to change a little to be more balanced. And I think it's really good for kids to work. I think it gives them a sense of accomplishment. It gives them a purpose, something to look forward to, something to dream about. You know, I I always want to give things to my children, but I remember what it was like growing up to be dreaming of getting a bicycle or, you know, a car or even my first restaurant. And when you don't have those kind of dreams, I think you're missing out because you're not building on that. Yeah, it's so true. And we, we've spent some time on that Stanford study where they gave kids rewards, bigger rewards for certain delayed gratification, even bigger rewards. And it's turning out on a longitudinal study that the single most important, important characteristic for success is the ability to delay gratification. And that's the only way a dream can ever come true, Don, is if you, you stick at it. And you stay at it. And by the way, I hate blaming the kids for this kind of stuff because in the end, it's the adults that created this mess, not well, the kids. you know, it, it, it is. And again, I wouldn't have been in the situation I was in had I not been forced to by my circumstances. Yep, I had to work. You had no choice. You had no I had choice. no choice. And, and you know what? I'm grateful for every moment of it. I don't regret it. It put me on my journey. And um, I've had the most wonderful life and career with Denny's. You know, there's this one, there's a note here, and we have a bunch of quotes from you, and I know nothing makes people cringe than hearing their own quotes, but you, from one particular story about you, you said, I knew from a very young age that I would be self-employed. As a young girl, I recall sitting with my mother and saying to her, one day, I'm going to own my own company and make a lot of money. And she said to me, of course you are. 
Talk about that positive reinforcement of your mom. Some moms would have said, there's no way that's going to happen, sweetheart. Well, you know, I can't even begin to tell you how powerful that is. My mom's given me two very powerful things, and that is one of them. And because I thought my whole life, well, every time I felt a stumbling block, I didn't let it get me down. Of course I'm going to own my own company. Of course I'm going to be successful. I mean, I just I just believed that if my mom believed in me, you know, of course you're going to do that. My mom didn't say, well, you know, don't set your dreams too big or don't aim too high. She just said, of course you are. So all along my path, I always thought, well, of course I am. Yep. I and, always thought positive about it. And those words, and we always tell people who are listening, your words matter to the people you're telling them to. We did an hour on Vince Lombardi, and we had Jerry Kramer. We had a clip from Jerry Kramer, the great All-American and All-Pro guard. And, and Lombardi was tough on Kramer. And Kramer was wondering whether he had it in him to be a pro. But he said, but one day, Coach came in the locker room, and he said, Kramer, you know why I'm so hard on you? Because you're going to be the best damn player of all time. You've got it in you. And he said, from that day forward, from that day forward, I was a changed man. And by the way, we heard this from him, Don, like 30 years after that incident. But he said it was the turning point in his life that someone believed in him that much. Well, I think, I think, I think we all have something like that. And as I mentioned to you, I have a, a second thing my mother did with me, and it is what propelled me, I think, to, to really go forward. And I, when I was buying my first restaurant, I was 23 years old, and I was a little nervous. And I thought, wow, man, there's, there's 30 people depending upon me for a job. What if, you know, what if I can't do it? What if I fail? What if, what if something goes wrong? And my mom looked at me and she says, so you start over at 26. (laughs) And I thought to myself, yeah, if I can't do it, I just start over and I keep trying. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. And and bless her heart for doing that for you, Don. And when we come back, we're going to pick up where we left off on growing this business. Because my goodness, getting those new restaurants, what a challenge for you. When we come back, the story of Don LaFrieda and the American Dreamer series that we love doing here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. American stories, and we're talking with Don LaFrieda. It's our American Dreamers segment, and let's talk a little bit more about one thing that happened when you were young that mattered as you got older. While still working at Denny's, Don, you took a second job selling accounting software and learned about computers and running a business. And yeah. so now you walk into this world of now having to manage four new stores, the ups, the downs, keeping a certain level of workforce in place dealing with the rainy days, dealing with the surfeit of those great times and tucking some away. What part did knowing about accounting and bumping up against that accounting software play in your development? Oh, it's such a huge part. Um, Well, first off, I learned about computers. And when I was going to school, they didn't teach us that. So I got that background. But I learned about how to run a small business 
when you work for a small company, you wear a lot of different hats. So I got to understand payroll, accounts payable, scheduling, billing, sales, um, a lot of different things, even just how to handle an influx of incoming mail, just a whole wide variety of um, office skills that I never had working in a restaurant. And, And I learned how to develop spreadsheets which became instrumental in me doing forecasting and budgeting and um, helping me to accomplish a lot more in a shorter amount of time because I was working in a restaurant. I was doing all the accounting for our company. So there was, there was a lot to do, and I felt very ready for it, having spent the time working in that accounting firm. And the accounting firm, or the, the uh, small software firm that I worked for, they sold accounting software to CPAs and lawyers. So when you when you have to learn the software, you're learning about debits and credits and where things get posted and profit and loss statements. And I also was, you know, learning about legal software for lawyers. So I got to just learn a ton of things that I think gave me an advantage over um, other other franchisees or small business owners who who maybe didn't have that background. Yeah, and I always pity the person who doesn't understand cash flow too. And I'm Lebanese, so it's sort of drilled into our heads from birth. Um, we're trading people, Lebanese people, and so we know what cash flow means. We've heard about it as kids, always saving enough for a rainy day, even more, um, and that cash is king in a business because if you run out of it, boy, you're going to pay hard for it. Cash is king, and you know, when you buy your business, um, you get your money, you buy your restaurant, well, they don't tell you when you're 23 that... Well, there's uh, deposits on every electric account you have and every water account and every gas account and every sales tax account. And there's things that you don't anticipate that you think, oh, I'm buying my restaurant and I'm paying this for it. Then you walk in the door and you need to come up with an extra $100,000 or whatever the magic number is for all the deposits and you go, oh, my gosh, take a deep breath. What am I going to do next? You bet. And so now you've got the stores in West Texas. How do you go from there and learning all the things you did in that really a, almost a battlefield? Because, And not that Midland's a battlefield, but just the ups and downs we were talking about. Uh, what were the next steps to getting to where you are today? How did you do that, Dawn? So I had, I had a business partner back then, and um, we were living in West Texas. And I was incredibly homesick. And the next biggest city to where I was living, I was living outside of Midland in a town called San Angelo because it had a lake and I missed the beach. And uh, San Antonio was the next biggest city. And so I finally convinced Denny's to sell us a store in, uh, in San Antonio, bought one store there, ended up uh, converting a couple more. So it, oh, I had maybe eight or so at the time, I ended up very soon after there buying out my business partner, and then I just went on a development craze and decided that I wanted to buy out other franchisees. I wanted to look at opportunities within Denny's. I wanted to build from the ground up. I wanted to move into some other markets. I left no stone unturned. I just had a real hunger for growth. And I think I'd had it when I was with my prior business partner. But, you know, when two people have to make a decision and one is a bigger risk taker than the other, 
um, you're not always aligned. And I always wanted to grow and develop, I think, at a much deeper level than she did. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when we were doing Bernie Marcus's story. Bernie actually admitted that he sometimes wanted to grow too fast. And that if it hadn't been for Arthur, his, his gas pedal was always all the way down. And so he said, thank goodness Arthur periodically slowed me down. In this case, though, it sounds like it, you were really getting held back. Arthur didn't hold Bernie well, back. Well, I, I, I was being held back because, you know, people have different egos and different, um, different things that are important to them at different times in their life. And I, I was just ready to develop and, and, and to grow. And I, I didn't have a specific number in mind, but I just knew I wanted to develop more restaurants. And I made mistakes along the way. I'm not going to say I didn't. And there's things that you have no control over that you don't foresee in the economy, a 9-11, a financial crisis, a, a market that struggles. I mean, there's things that happen, and you, you're not always prepped for it. But, again, I was, you know, the captain of my own destiny, and so whatever I laid out for myself, I was going to fix if I created a problem. And I think in the end it, it made me stronger because when I did get myself into a pickle in a market, I said, how am I going to get myself out? Well, I'm going to upgrade my stores. I'm going to buy more stores. I'm going to close these stores. I'm, you know, I, I would set out a strategy for how I was going to tackle whatever situation came my way. And by the way, it was interesting earlier you had said you convinced Denny's. I did. Uh, and and uh, it sounded to me like you were not just going to convince them. You were going to just wear them down. Well, um, that's, yeah. So I would call frequently, um, frequently please sell us a store in San Antonio. And, and I got no for a long time, and they finally caved in, and, and we got to buy one. And this this one in particular store I had wanted, and they wouldn't sell it, and they wouldn't sell it. But 25 years later, Lee, they sold it to me. So I waited 25 <laughs> years for that store, but I finally got it. Well, that's perseverance, Dawn. And, and by the way, we know that that's one of the major attributes to being an entrepreneur or to being really good at anything. You just got to stick to it. It doesn't come overnight. And talk about just a little bit here, and we're going to come back on the other side and talk about this too. Uh, I often think that sometimes the wage gap between men and women, yeah, there's sexism, there's no doubt, and it's, it's rampant. But I also think that the women I've met, who, when they come to me and say, well, how do I go get a, wa- or a raise? And I go, you got to go fight for one. And they go, no, I don't, I don't uh, you know, I'm just not comfortable doing that. And then, of course, the, the, the male boss, well, he's never going to lean down and give that woman the raise. And do you think there, that a part of the wage gap has to do with women not being trained from the ground up? And this is sexist, too. I mean, the, the, you know, human beings are taught to fight for things, and we're teaching our boys to fight, but we're not teaching our girls to fight for a raise. Do you find that happens as a boss? Uh, no, but I'm in a different situation because I am a female, and I pay all my people in my company based upon performance, experience, job code. So we don't discriminate between gender. Right. But we're in, a, in the hospitality industry, which is, uh, it's not like being an executive or being in higher management where you're competing with men. I mean, we, have, we actually have a higher percentage of women employees by a few percent than we do men, but we pay them fairly based upon what market they're working in, uh, what volume of restaurant they're managing, you know, various criteria. So we don't, like I said, discriminate between male and female. However, I have several friends who 
have come to me over the years that when they talk to me about their careers and what they're making, I have coached them and said, you know, unless you go in and say this is unacceptable. Now, I don't know what their male counterparts are making, but I know as a female what they were being paid was yep. below what they should have. And and I can tell you quite honestly, one in particular person I coached got a $10,000 raise immediately and then went on to propel higher. Well, and that's great that you did that, and I think we all need to coach everyone that you know, you just got to fight for what you believe in. And it doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what, what sexual orientation you are. Fight. Fight. And you'll have a much better chance of getting what you want. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamer series with Don LaFrieda. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We love asking people what their favorite music was, especially when they were young. And thus we come in with Barry Manilow, somebody that Don loved. And it looks like you did make it, Don. But then again, something tells me at 77 restaurants, you're not finished. Well, no, and it's, it's already 78, so uh-huh. um, definitely not finished, even though you just outed me as a fan which I totally am. So thank <laughs> you for that song, because I love him, and I, I've gotten to meet him twice, and it's been, um, it was really great to get to meet somebody that you enjoyed so much growing up. That is terrific. And let's talk about that. You're, you're, you're at 78 restaurants and going strong. What's your biggest problem uh, as it relates to running your business now, and maybe even two? Uh, hands down, staffing. Finding enough employees. The, I've passed on restaurants because I couldn't find enough help. And the last thing you want to do is build a restaurant and not be able to give great service. And I think that is my single biggest challenge today. I mean, we have a lot of other issues that are out there. Um, there's things we have control of and things we don't have control of. And this is just something that over the course of the last 10 years has just gotten horrific to deal with. And what are the principal problems within that? Could you break some of that down? Well, I think as we discussed earlier, everybody is hiring. Right. And I also think there's a fair amount of the population that doesn't have to work that when we were growing up, we were working at 16, 17, 18, 20, 22. There's a whole segment of kids, young adults, going to college, not having to work. Um, there's a lot of factors, and there are a lot more jobs. And so, so what, do you, you, what do you do about that, Don? I mean, and, and what do you do to retain the people that you currently have? Well, that, that's really the key, but even, even when you do your best, to retain them, that doesn't always that doesn't always work because people have different agendas. There's a lot of people that just want to earn a paycheck for a short amount of time to, oh, maybe get their down payment on their apartment and move on. I don't know. There's not the longevity that I saw growing up. There's not the commitment to your employer, to your job, to your customer. 
so for instance and and I don't want to generalize or say that everybody is like this but you know we have more drugs in society than we had before and I will call in people I'll interview them I will say, you know, can you pass a background check? Can you pass a drug test? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So we hire them because we need bodies. We need to get people in training. And then many, many, many times they fail the drug test. So I think that's something that has plagued uh, our industry. Yep. For a long time. And by the way, Dawn, it's not just your industry. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff put out a report two years ago that said 75% of American males don't qualify to enter the military because of felonies and inability to simply pass the basic physical and or test and drug tests. So it's not just you that's facing that particular problem, particularly with males, but they even said that it was a growing factor with the females too. Yeah. Oh, it's a a problem. And I, I believe that dilutes the workforce for us. I think every new building on every new corner dilutes the workforce. I think kids that don't have to work, um, and, and I'm happy for them, uh, dilutes the workforce. It, it doesn't leave us a lot to choose from. And in in the olden days, huh, back when I was young, you had to, I had to wait in line six months for my job at Denny's. Today you run an ad, and you you might get somebody that says they'll come in for an interview, and you you got to hope that they show because a lot of times – They'll schedule an interview and not even show. Yeah, that's not a good way to, 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 to make an impression on your future boss. Well, Don. you know, it's not. But again, they know that tomorrow there's a help wanted sign on every corner. It's so it's so true. How many people do you employ right now, Close Don? to 3,000. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. It's a lot. And in the, in the restaurant industry, it has high turnover with servers and cooks. And so we really end up turning about 7,500 in a year. Oh, just keeping track of that has got to be something. It's a lot. I'm, I'm so grateful I have wonderful people to help me do all that. And when, but, what you do know, you... When, you, when you collect them along the way, a few each year, <laughs> yep. you know, you kind of pace yourself and, and you grow into it. That's so true. And what do you do for your own work-life balance, Dawn? What do you and your partner do? And uh, just talk to us a bit about that. Uh you know, our big thing is dining out, traveling, theater, concerts, um, and attending an awful lot of basketball games. Good for you. That, that, that comes with 13-year-old twin boys. Now, you're, we, we did a special on Tim Duncan's retirement. Yeah. Because what a remarkable human being. Right. And yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. Uh, my kids were just recently at a birthday party, and uh, his children were at the same party, and uh, he was shooting free throws with my kids. They thought, you know, they'd gone to heaven. Well, yeah, I, I would have gone to heaven, too. That would be a dream of mine. Next time there's a ch- shot at that, Dawn, give us a buzz. I'll be in San Antonio in a New York minute. I was conceived in San Antonio at Lackland wow. Air Force Base, wow. and I was born at Sampson Air Force Base in Syracuse. So I, I, mean, I tracked so it back. Been around. Yeah, I, been around. I figured it out. Well, I think Tim Duncan is just a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal human being, gives back to the community, has the right spirit about the sport, about community, about just everything. He's a, a great individual. Well, and I love the way he retired. He didn't have one of these Kobe Bryant, you know, and this is no slam on Kobe. I love Kobe, too. Everyone's different. But he just wrote a little note saying, I'm not playing anymore. And they had to, like, almost pull him into, like, just a, a goodbye dinner. 
um, because he just he's just such a humble guy, the way he played and you know the way he lives. It's not about Timmy Duncan. No, he's very humble, and he always gives credit to others and lets, lets everybody be part of the game, even yeah. if he can make the shot. You bet. And, and Don, I had to tell you a quick story because I was doing a, a, some poll and dial testing uh, for, uh, for Frank Luntz, who was poll and dial testing minimum wage and the, the minimum wage issue, which I'll ask you about in a second. Um, but I said, look, I, I said, Frank, let me just tell a story to this group of folks. And it was half Republican, half Democrat. And all I did was come in and tell a very simple story. I told your story. And I said that a minimum wage job is an entry-level job to a future and a life uh-huh. where you learn about work and you learn about the dignity of work. And then pretty soon you can save enough money to get a, uh, get a store of your own and then maybe get a couple more. And this is the story of franchising in America, Don. It's amazing that 20% of the American workforce works under this this idea called franchising. And by the way, you've made a full bet on Denny's. Most people diversify their portfolio as they start to grow, but you said no. I'm I'm a Denny's that's I'm right. a Denny's girl. That's that. Talk about that. Talk about this franchising world and the minimum wage if you don't mind. Absolutely. So, uh, I I do get offers to um to diversify pr- probably every day. Every restaurant concept, uh, any kind of franchising opportunity out there, but I've been very successful with Denny's. I have a fleet of restaurants that I understand the brand inside and out. I know how to troubleshoot the problems. I, I, you know, I know it and I understand it and I love it. And I have a lot of friends I've known who who they've done other concepts, and it, it detracts from what they have that is really making them live well. Yeah. There, there are some that do really great in other concepts, but I just never wanted to take my focus off Denny's. I just thought, you know what, I'm set, up, I'm set up to grow. My team knows Denny's. We can just take this and we can go. And people often ask me also, well, why don't you start your own restaurant? Why don't you do your own concept? You could, you know, wouldn't have to pay all those royalties and advertising fees. And I said, yeah, you know, you're right about that, but maybe I'd only have 10 restaurants because I'd have to be thinking about the decor and the sign and the menu and the recipes and the uniforms and what's my building going to look like and architects. And, you know, with franchising, you can just develop at a faster pace because a lot of that's done for you in the fees that you pay. And, And you get a proven concept. If I hang the name Dawn's up, who knows how many people will come? There's 97% brand awareness of a Denny sign, and, and I think that's powerful. And um, we serve everybody, and, and I like that. I, er, anybody can go to Denny's. It's not you, you can be rich, you can be poor. There's something there for everybody, and I like that about my brand. Yep, it's so true. And then you get to focus on operations and execution and do what you know best. And these big national branders are are coming in there and they have the leverage to do what they do. And it's been such a terrific model. I think it's created more wealth for the ordinary American. I think, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've been happy having one brand. And, you know, I, I sometimes I say, well, how many restaurants does one girl need? And, well, as many as, you know, I can possibly get. <laughs> but not at a cost of your quality of life. And do you want to go learn something new? Do you want to take time away from your existing operation to go pay attention to another brand? And I just didn't want to do that. 
Well, you and your partner, it sounds like, have a great life. And my goodness, you don't want to miss a Spurs game because you have another brand. That would be the end for me, Dawn. Right, or a Barry Manilow concert. Or a Barry Manilow concert. Well, Dawn, thanks so much for joining us for the hour. Dawn LaFrieda, a part of our American Dreamers story, started with nothing as a young kid, started working at the age of 10, and now owns 77 Denny's restaurants and employs 3,000 people. Thanks so much, Dawn, for joining us. Great to be here. Appreciate the hour you gave me. You betcha. And you can hear all of what we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.